How y'all doing today? Good. If you have your uh, copy of scripture, we can start. You don't really have to turn there. But uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 is where we've been pulling the last few weeks from. And Matthew 1, verse 1 is a pretty simple verse where it lays out the beginning of uh, Matthew's uh, genealogy of Jesus. And so he's telling us a story by referring to the genealogy of Jesus there. And it says there in verse 1, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the last couple of weeks we've talked about the first two significant names there. Christ, the Messiah. This is Jesus, not Christ as in his last name, but he is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one that's been promised from the very beginning. He's the one that fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. Then he goes on and says, this is the son of David. That's also very messianic because the prophecy said that it was through the line of David that a Messiah would come. And so he is connecting it back to David. But we also talked about the significance of David as king and that somehow this Messiah who comes would reign as a king. And we talked about the significance of what a king does. A king is the one who fights off the enemies for the peace of the people. And so the king is the one who is establishing the law. He's the one that pushes back the enemy. His goal is to establish peace within the kingdom, a good king. And so Jesus is that good king who comes and fights our worst enemy, not the Romans, but actually sin itself. And he's the one who wants to bring peace. He's the prince of peace. And so Jesus fulfills those roles of being the son of David. We talked about the significance of how uh, even the power of, of Jesus over sickness and death and how many of the lepers and those who couldn't walk or couldn't hear, whoever it was, that they would call out to the son of David to have mercy on them. And that's because also those messianic passages that when this person would come, this Messiah would come, that this healing would come from this son of David. And so these people, by declaring you are the son of David, they were recognizing that he was the fulfillment of those messianic passages and their belief and their trust and their faith in him. But then there's that last part which talks about the son of of Abraham. Now again, when we understand what Matthew's doing here in verse 1, laying this out before he gets into the full genealogy, in the Old Testament, just as David had authority over all those enemies of Israel that were threatening them, Jesus in the New Testament has authority over that ultimate enemy. What we see again is these are foreshadowings of what Jesus was going to do. Jesus demonstrates authority that was far greater than anything David ever had. So throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus displays authority, like we talked about, over sickness, over spirits, over seas and storms, over nature itself. And so the, the truth is that we can trust him with the problems of our own lives. That's what we talked about last week. That when we go through a struggle, when we go through a crisis, we can also call out to the son of David. So Jesus invites us not only to benefit from his authority, but he also, doesn't he invite us to come into submission to his authority? So it's not just about the benefit that we get from him, but it's also us submitting ourselves to him in totality, holding nothing back, becoming his servants. So that really leads into this bigger picture that I think he goes to with this son of Abraham. Now, even though he's king, not only of the natural world, but he's king over humanity itself. 
So it's not just king over creation, not just king over sickness and disease and death. He's literally king over all humanity. And I think Revelation uh, shows that and bears that out for us to say every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And we see that come to fruition in the foreshadowings in the book of Revelation. He is king not only of the natural but also of us He's king over our hearts. He's king over our souls. We can submit our lives to him. And when we submit our lives to him, that's when we get the great benefit of him being our king. Now, this title, Son of Abraham, is kind of a contrast, I think, with the son of David. It identifies Jesus with the rest of Israel. So the son of David identifies him with one tribe because it was through the tribe of Judah. It was through that kingly tribe that Jesus was going to come, and Matthew establishes that for us. So, But being the son of Abraham actually widens that out, and it goes back even further. So yes, during those times of prophecy and during those times of the darkest days of Israel, they were looking for the son of David. And so Jesus is the fruition of those hopes and dreams. But what Matthew doesn't want us to miss was there was a greater promise beforehand that actually the son of David finds its beginning and foundation in, and that is the person of Abraham. That Abraham was going to be the father of many nations, right? He was going to be a father of a great nation that was going to be a blessing to all the nations. Okay, so if you keep that in the back of your mind and understand that promise to Abraham, then we begin to see why Jesus is connected to Abraham in that way. But let's, let's dig into this a little further. When we think about what happens in Abraham's life, and we think about Jesus being the son of Abraham, we think about the descendants of Abraham and what they went through. Remember, they, uh, you know, he wandered around in, in the promised land for a while, but G, uh, God told him that uh, his descendants were the ones that were actually going to fulfill the land, but for a time they would be in slavery in Egypt, but he was going to bring them out of that bondage and give them this land. And that was, the, that was the promise that Abraham was given. And then what we find is throughout the rest of the Torah, we see that unfold. We see them go into slavery with the whole story of Joseph and all the brothers going in there, and then we find them residing there. And then Exodus opens up with this, this new Pharaoh who has come into power. He does not recognize Joseph, and he puts all of them in slavery. And so that begins with the calling of Moses, and Moses goes in and delivers them. And then all of a sudden, we f they find themselves wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. Isn't it interesting, though, at the beginning of the Gospels, we see Jesus being called out of his family, and we see him go into the wilderness for 40 days. So there's a lot of similarities when you begin to understand what the Gospels are telling us and what you find in the Old Testament. You're going to find those similarities over and over and over again. And that's a picture of Jesus and how he identifies with his people, how he identifies with his people's heritage. And he fulfilled everything that they could not fulfill. They wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, constantly begroaning and sinning. And yet Jesus comes out of the wilderness for 40 days fasting, and he comes out fighting Satan himself and does not give in to the temptation. So he is that better Israelite. He is that better son of Abraham. Beyond all this, we see that Jesus embraces Abraham's mission in so many different ways. And it's very clear when you go back to the book of Genesis that the nations of the earth were supposed to be blessed 
by Abraham. And in Matthew, Jesus becomes that blessing to the nations. So you have to look at the gospel in totality of how it begins. Think about there, he says, this is the son of Abraham. And in a moment, we're going to go and look at how Matthew comes to an ending, and it's a powerful conclusion to how it begins. So let's dig into this a little further. Let's start with a very simplistic question. What does it mean that Jesus was born son of Abraham? Well, I think to understand what that means, you have to go all the way back to Abraham and understand the life of Abraham for a bit. Now, we're not going to do an in-depth study on Genesis 12 all the way through the end, but I think we can point back to a few things and lay a foundation of understanding that we can begin to grasp this title and why it was assigned to Jesus. If you understand the background of Abraham, you would know that Abraham was not a Jew. Okay, He was a Gentile. He was a pagan. There was no Jews before Abraham. But one thing you understand about Abraham is he grew up in a Gentile environment. He grew up in a pagan environment. His dad was literally an idol maker. That's what he did for a living. He made idols with his hands. And we know that this is what God called Abraham out of. And as he called Abraham out of that, he introduced himself for the first time as this one God, this God of covenant. Now, it's interesting because Abraham is the person that God initiates this covenant with, and he gives him this holy name that he becomes known by. It gets forgotten over time, and God reintroduces himself to Moses at the burning bush when Moses says, if they ask me who sent me, Who will I tell them sent me? And he says, you tell them I am sent you. And I am is literally the covenant name of God, Yahweh. I am what I've always been. I will always be what I am. And so it it encapsulates a whole perspective of God's character. And this is where it all starts is with the person of Abraham. Now, when God calls him out of his paganism and reveals himself to him, Uh, He becomes the steward of a promise. So Abraham was a father with a promise. We think of Father Abraham as the father of faith. But it was a promise that was entrusted to him really that is is what the focus of the Old Testament is about, specifically on his life. So if we go back to Genesis 12, verse 1, if you want to turn with me in your scripture, you can. We're going to look at some big sections here. We're going to look at 12. We're going to look at 15. So you might want to make some notes on the side if you want to. If not, you'll have it behind me as well. Now, Genesis 12, 1 starts off this way. Now, the Lord said to Abram. Now, remember, this is before God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, okay, that's your paganism, and your kindred, And your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, look, notice what it says there. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, now here's what's amazing. If I was to take that out and say, this isn't about Abraham, this is about Jesus, do you notice how it actually fits perfectly with exactly what happens in Jesus' life? Think about this. Now the Lord said to Jesus, go from your country. He leaves heaven and he comes to earth. He leaves his father, just like it says there, and he comes to the land that God showed him, the land of Israel. 
And, and it says, and I will make of you a great nation. And so we are his people. We are the priesthood of Christ. Uh, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Do you think Jesus' name has been made great? Do you think that he's been a blessing in any capacity? Can I get an amen? So think about how it continues. Um, I will bless those who bless you, and whom he dis- whoever dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so when you get into the Gospels, when it talks about this idea of him being the son of Abraham, it's this picture of somehow Jesus literally embraces and embodies the promise of Abraham, and he lives it out in its totality. So yes, I'm not saying that he's, he's talking about Jesus here, not Abraham. He's obviously talking about Abraham. But what the gospel writers want us to understand is that, follow me on this, Jesus is a better Abraham. Where Abraham grows in his faith, and we see him growing in that, um, Jesus never falters from what God called him to. When, when Abraham leaves on God's prompting, he does it, and it's with faith that he leaves, but he doesn't leave perfectly. He says, leave your home, leave your family, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. He left his home, but he only went halfway between where he was actually taking him and where he was, he w- where he was from, and he brought part of his family with him. Imperfect faith, but yet faith nonetheless. A small, wavering, but yet a seed of faith. And what do we see but that seed developing over Abraham's life? He makes tons of mistakes. We're going to look at some of those. But yet God is faithful to give him this promise to be a steward of this. But yet God is the one who promises to fulfill that. If you go on to Genesis chapter 15, um, what you find is that's where the promise is reiterated. So it's kind of introduced right there at the very beginning of his calling out of his paganism into his following of Yahweh. But in in Genesis 15, we see it a lot more clear. Verse 1 of 15 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, and, and, and God, that's that picture of the covenant name of God. What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram is is sitting here at this point going, Okay, I know that you've told me these things and you've promised me these things, but all I'm telling you is this is my current situation. And my current situation is that can't happen. I don't have any kids. I don't have an heir. Matter of fact, the person who, who stands to inherit everything that you've given me is a man from Damascus who is just one of my servants because I don't have anybody to leave this to. And look how God responds, verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
So this belief, this becomes the foundation of what we believe as a church, what we believe as Christians, is that salvation is based on faith, not on our actions. Because notice that God said that it was Abraham's belief in something that he couldn't see, that he couldn't fathom, that he couldn't understand, but somehow he trusted God in it, and that faith was counted to him as righteousness because he believed God at his word. Now, this is before there was ever a law. Moses hasn't come along with the law yet. And this is even before the covenant promise uh, signal, which was, was uh, um, circumcision. So before there was ever the sign of the covenant, and before there was actually a covenant itself, there is only this God who promises to do something for this man, and this man just believes him at his word. Okay, that's the foundation of how this whole story develops from the Old Testament and even into the New. Now, how did Abraham get there? Because one thing we know is that Abraham was not perfect, but he did grow in his faith. So when we think about the story of Abraham, we typically think of those big moments in life, right? We think of him interceding for his nephew Lot. We think of him fighting the ten kings uh, alliances from the north that came in and defeated Sodom and Gomorrah and took away his nephew and all the, the pillage and plunder of that. And then he went and defeated them with 300 of his own men and he brings that back. We think of him meeting uh, Melchizedek on the way back and, and, and he actually recognizes him as something greater than himself and he tithes to him. He gives him 10% of everything that he has and Melchizedek, which I believe is an Old Testament picture of Jesus, he serves to Abraham uh, bread and wine, which is a picture of the Last Supper as well. So we have these incredible moments, but we don't really like to talk about those other moments, do we? We don't like to talk about the fact he was scared to death of Pharaoh, so he lied about his wife and said that she was really his sister, and that got them into all kinds of trouble. That's actually where he ends up getting Hagar, who becomes another problem and mistake that he makes because as they don't have kids and he doesn't see how this is going to happen, he tries to help God out a little bit, and, and they come up with this idea, and Hagar becomes the, or the mother and Abraham the father of Ishmael. Not the promised son, not the way God intended for it to happen. And so we see all of these, these moments in Abraham's life where he falters in his faith. Where, yes, he believes it to some capacity, but he doesn't believe it all the way. And he wants to embrace it based on his current circumstances, not based on just what God's word says as face value. And so we know that he was imperfect. But I want to show you something I think is pretty amazing. If you go to Genesis chapter 21, okay, we're continuing to progress. In chapter 21, this is after, if you look around verse, uh, well, actually, I think it's right there at the beginning. But if you see right before that, you'll see that's where Ishmael gets sent away. So it comes to this point that literally Isaac's life maybe is in danger because Ishmael is going to kill him. He's very jealous of him. And so Sarah becomes very worried about it. And she tells Abraham, you've got to send this other boy and his mother away. And Abraham was like, no, you can imagine Abraham's love for his child. And, and he goes and he prays to God and God says, listen to your wife. And ladies, if you need to know that reference, I'll give it to you later on. You can pull it up a lot of times. But literally, that's what God says, listen to your wife. So, I mean, this is painful for Abraham. So now he's beginning to experience the consequences of his mistake. This is not the promised child, and now you've put your family in danger with this. You have to send 
this mother and this child away. And then God promises to take care of them. There's this beautiful picture of even though they, they are left, God says, I'm going to take care of you, and I'm also going to extend grace to Ishmael. I'm going to make of him a great nation. But this is not the promise. This is not what I intended from the beginning. And so at that point, Abraham begins to realize from all of that pain of going through life and having all of that separation, can you imagine what that feels like? Now he begins to understand, you know what, I am not the author of my own life. I don't get to make decisions based on what I want to do. I have to go to what God's word says. And so this small seed of faith begins to grow. Now there's this obscure little story between Ishmael being sent away. Isaac is about five years old right now. So this miracle child that they have way past childbearing years is now about five years old. And then just coming in chapter 22 is where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. Okay, so that's coming. So in between the pain of sending Ishmael away and the pain and the frustration and misunderstanding of why is God calling me to sacrifice this miracle child that I've been waiting so long for that's obviously uh, the fruition of all of these promises and all of these hopes and all of these dreams. Why is God calling? In the middle of that, they insert this little bitty story. Now, notice what that story is about. I don't want to go into all the details because I'm not going to read it, but it's basically this guy named Abimelech. Now, his name is literally not Abimelech. It's actually a title. It's like a general. Okay, so there are actually two different Abimelechs that are referred to in Genesis, and they're not the same person. So this is a title. This is a guy who's a governor. He's, he's like the head of one of those traveling tribes. And what he has seen is that God has richly blessed Abraham. So in this day, they didn't have nations. They have what we call city-states. And most of these city-states were traveling. They would move around. So when we they come into an area they would try and find the most powerful people around and they would try and make a peace treaty with them because that's the best way to stay safe because if you didn't have a peace treaty with them they would gang up on you and they would come and defeat you and take all of your stuff and you would just be absorbed into their larger entity okay so Abimelech notices that this powerful man is experiencing this incredible blessing of God so he comes to him for this peace treaty and all of a sudden, in this story, Abraham says, oh, sure, that, that's fine. What went into a peace treaty? But then it's like Abraham's mind is on something else. And he brings up this idea of a well. And he says, by the way, while you're here, let me just address something. Your men have commandeered a well from my shepherds. And Abimelech's like, hey, he's th- he can see this peace treaty falling apart at this point. He's like, I didn't know anything about that. Why didn't you tell me about that? I had no idea about that. Uh, the well's yours. Fine. No big deal. And Abraham says, no, I, I, I've set aside these seven ewe lambs, and I'm giving them to you as a sign that this is a well that I dug with my own hands. This is my well. Okay. And then notice what it says there at the very end of, in verse 33. After he secures the well, it tells us that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So here's the thing. Isaac's five years old. Abraham is over 100 years old. He doesn't have a whole lot of time left. Now think about this for a moment. When you plant trees, are you looking to see the fruit of your labor next year? No, you're, you're looking years into the future when you plant a tree. You plant a flower, yes. You plant a tomato vine, yes. Grapevine, you know, a few years, maybe a couple years down the road to get to maturity. But when you plant a tree, you're looking far into the future. Now, here's what's interesting. Abraham, they give us this little story in between Ishmael being sent away and before he's called to sacrifice Isaac. There's this little story of saying, all right, here's the deal. 
I've got to have this well, and I'm going to plant these tamarisk trees right here. Now, the place that this happens is the furthest south that you can go in Israel. And if I were to show it to you on a map, you would just see that it's desert land. It's as far south as you can go in Israel and actually continue to take care of herds of cattle or sheep or goats. Okay? If he goes any further, all of his livestock are, stock are dead because there's no water or anything further than that. So he is commandeering this well, making sure that it's his, and planting these tamarisk trees. Now, tamarisk trees grow like crazy in arid, salty climates, so this is perfect for them. Matter of fact, whenever they throw out their spores, they throw out a million spores every time they do that. Uh, matter of fact, in, in New Mexico, uh, here in the United States, uh, tamarisk trees are not indigenous to this continent, but they brought them over to help with soil erosion in these desert areas. And what they found was in about 30 to 40 years, they were overwhelmed with them. And now it's a whole nother problem that they have because they can't contain the growth of them. They grow so fast in those climates. So literally, you could plant one tree, and in about 40 years, you got this small forest of tamarisk trees. Now, tamarisk trees are also incredibly dense. So that they have needles, but they're very densely put together. So they they provide incredible shade underneath. As a matter of fact, it creates this canopy of shade. They're only about 30 feet high, so they don't grow super tall, okay? But they're about 30 feet high, and they grow out pretty wide away from the trunk, and so they provide a great shade. So I say all of that to say, what's the importance of this? The importance that the Scripture gives us in telling us this story right here is this. Abraham is really beginning to believe. Why? Go back to the original promise. What he told him whenever he separated those animal pieces and he saw the firing pot come through the pieces, which was a symbol of God coming in, and he made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, this is what I'm going to do for you. I am, it's going to be on me. I'm going to give you a great descendants. I'm going to give you a great nation that's going to come for you. That nation is going to be a blessing. But then he also tells them, but for a time, they will be slaves. And for 400 years they will be slaves, but I will not forget them, and I will come and I will rescue them with my strong arm, and I will bring them out of their slavery, and I will bring them into this land that I've promised you. Where do they end up being slaves? Egypt is, is where he knows that's where they're going to be. So Abraham begins to think this. If God is going to give me a bunch of descendants, and they're going to be slaves in Egypt, and then he's going to bring them to this land, they're going to have to walk through this desert. And if they have to walk through this desert, they're going to need some shade to sit under, and they're going to need some water to drink. Because what we know from the story of Abraham is he doesn't stay there very much longer. He doesn't even stay there long enough to see these trees grow to their fullest capacity. And then he's gone, and then he dies. So all of a sudden, he's beginning to think bigger than himself. Now notice here, this is the first time this title for God ever shows up in Scripture. Look at it right there. Uh, 33, towards the end, the name of the Lord. He called on the name of the Lord. What does it say? The everlasting God. What this means is this. Abraham is beginning to think beyond himself now. He's beginning to realize this really isn't about me as much as it is about me being the beginning of something that far outlasts me. That this story is bigger than my story. That somehow God is going to do something that far exceeds me and it's over the, s the, over the horizon of where I can see. 
You ever been to the beach and you look at, you know, you think, well, that must be where the water ends because there's a line where the sky meets the water. You ever been in a kid and you thought, well, that must be the end of it? And of course, we know that that's just the horizon and you can't see past it. So a ship could actually be sailing. and All of a sudden, it just slips over that horizon and you can't see it anymore because of the curvature of the earth. And so there's this Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is olam. Say that with me. Olam. And that's literally the word that he says here. He calls on the God, El Olam, the everlasting God. Because Olam is a word for eternity. Now, the reason that that's important to understand is that's actually the way that the Jews or the Hebrew would would explain Olam. They would say it's just beyond what you can see. And as much as you run and try and see it, it's just beyond where you can get. So no matter how far you go, it's still just beyond you. So think about Abraham incorporating that idea into a title for God. He is the God that's far beyond you. He's the God that's just beyond where you can see. You look and you don't see anything, but he's just beyond that. And so Abraham is beginning to believe that. And then that leads into the incredible, what we call the bedekot uh, in, in Hebrew. It is the binding of Isaac. And that's what we have in chapter 22. So, so the author wants us to understand that Abraham's faith wasn't just instantaneous. That it wasn't just like one day he went from really screwing things up with Hagar and all that kind of thing to, man, I'm willing to just trust God completely. They're showing you that this man's faith has been gradually growing. And he's finally got to this point where he really believes that somehow God is going to do this. And it's not about him. It's about God. And God says, there's one last test to see if he really believes. I've got to let him know that this is about me. And so he brings him to this place. Now, look at what it says in chapter 22. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you, as we read the binding of Isaac, which is a very familiar story to all of us, I want you to try and pay attention to how many things in this story are a reflection of what we know about Jesus. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' life, whatever those things may be. Okay? I want you to try and find as many similarities and analogies as we read this. Verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, now watch my fingers here, here I am, okay, here I am, you watch that, okay, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, is that Abraham's only son? It is, because he had to send the other one away, this is literally the only son he has left, there, there's going to be no relationship over here, that, that bridge is burned, I mean, it's gone, this is now his only son. This is his only hope for any kind of future. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you, what does it say? Whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains, I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the, what does it say? Third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now right there, there's another display. Very subtle, but there's another display of Abraham's faith. 
he tells these men, knowing full well that God told him to go and sacrifice his son, he said, me and the boy are going to go over there and worship, and then we're going to come back to you. He assures them that him and the boy. So this tells us right here that Abraham believes that somehow God is going to miraculously protect his son. If he literally goes through with this slaying, that somehow God's going to bring him up from the dead. Or somehow this is going to work out because this is God's promise and somehow God's going to make this promise happen. So he assures them that me and the boy are going to come back. Okay? Not only that, here's something else that's amazing about it. When we think about the word worship, did you know this is the very first time it ever shows up in Scripture? This is the first time the word worship shows up. And notice that it's not a service where people are hearing the word of God taught. It's not a bunch of people who are singing songs. It's not a prayer gathering. It's not even in a building. It's on top of a mountain, and it involves sacrifice. That's worship. That's powerful right there. We could preach on that for a little while. But I, you know, I got to get to some other stuff. So here we go. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and, what does it say? Laid it on Isaac, his son. So literally, Isaac is carrying the wood that he's going to be sacrificed on, on his back. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket. Not a lamb, but a ram. Now, I always wondered why the University of Mobile made ram their mascot when the most significant passage involving a ram is it being sacrificed. But anyway... Um, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will, what? Provide. Provide what? Exactly what he said. The Lord will provide for himself a lamb. But a lamb wasn't provided for. It was a ram. So what happens? You get to the beginning of the New Testament John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, says when he sees Jesus coming for his baptism, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So God has now provided the Lamb. So all of this is a foreshadowing. Notice in verse 18. Again, you see the reiteration of what the promise. First, go back to verse 17 just to see that reiteration. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be, what? Blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived there in Beersheba. So when we get to the New Testament, what we find is these New Testament writers want us to realize that Jesus is a better Abraham, that Jesus is a better Isaac, 
Just as Abraham had this miraculous son that you can't explain, so Jesus comes into this world in this miraculous birth. He is the promised son that comes in a miraculous way. Just as Isaac had to take his own wood for his own sacrifice up a mountain, Jesus had to take the wood of his own sacrifice up the mountain. The only difference in these stories is the fact that it's God's son, his only son, the son that he loves. All those are similar. The only difference is... Jesus isn't spared. The reason is, Isaac isn't a good enough sacrifice. He's not perfect. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect Isaac. He's the perfect Abraham. He believes his father. He trusts him. He gives him his life in totality. And God doesn't withhold his wrath when it comes to the death of Jesus. So what happens is these New Testament writers begin to pick up on this. There's actually this interaction that Jesus has that John tells us about. It's in John chapter 8, so we'll probably get to that in just a couple of years. Not like John, you know, 15, well, it'll be five years away. John chapter 8, 51 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. What? What day? How does that relate to the story of Abraham and Jesus? Son, the God will provide for himself the lamb. Abraham knew that a lamb wasn't provided that day, which that's where he begins to understand that somehow this is a bigger picture than him. But he looked forward to the day that God was going to provide the perfect lamb. He's looking forward to this day, and this day comes to fruition. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. That's huge. We don't have time to get into it, but the fact that they say 50 years old is amazing. goes back to Leviticus, but anyway, we'll, we'll save that for another day. And you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what did Abraham say three times? Here I am, here I am, here I am. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I am, holy name of God, Yahweh, the covenant name. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now here's the beautiful picture. So we see how those two stories come together. Now the question is, how does it impact our story? How does this impact us? Well, again, the New Testament writers pick up on this. Turn over, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians chapter 3, we have this incredible picture that Paul paints for us about um, this idea of being related to Abraham or being children of Abraham. And so when we see that, um, I think you're going to see how these stories parallel and, and kind of dovetail into our own story. Look at what he says in chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. It starts off in verse 6 saying this, Just as Abraham 
believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, remember, before the law, before circumcision, it was already counted to him as right. Why? Because he trusted God, a God that he couldn't see the promise in front of him. He just knew that somehow this God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So he's saying here that we are all included, whether we're Gentile or Jews, because a lot of people would sit there and think, there's not a Jewish cell in my entire body. How in the world can I ever be considered a son of Abraham? Well, Paul is saying that it's not about this physical nature anymore. It's about this spiritual nature. Because if you look at Abraham, Abraham wasn't a Jew either. He was a pagan, pulled out of his paganism. And God said, I'm going to do something through you. And then what happened was Israel became so focused on themselves that they forgot that they were actually chosen to be a blessing to the other nations, not just to absorb all the blessing themselves. And so now he's saying this is how Christ came to set everything straight. He came and preached to uh, Israel. He came to call the lost sheep of Israel back under their good shepherd. But many of them rejected him. But now he is continuing that original promise to be a blessing to the nations. And so this is the picture that we are the children of faith. So when it talks about Abraham, you will have descendants that will outnumber the sands on the shore, and the stars in the sky. He's not talking about Jewish descendants. He's talking about spiritual descendants. Now, there have been many Jews that come from Abraham. But let me tell you this. There have been many, 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 many more Christians who have come from Abraham. And so he's the original father of faith, and we become his children the same way that he became a child of God. And that is faith believing that god's going to do something that we just can't see how he's going to do it and it goes back to those great little songs father abraham had many sons remember singing that when you were a kid you never questioned that as a kid did you now you get older and you're like how can i be a son of abraham man that's that's the whole thing is understanding that god is doing something much bigger than us what does it mean to trust god what does it mean to have faith in him i love this and i think this is important for us to understand john piper gives this illustration it's so perfect i'm going to read it word for word i just want you to hear this and, and picture this he says this picture heaven as orchestra hall and the music of the symphony as the glory of god everybody here knows that faith is the precondition for entering that hall and enjoying that music. But some of you, I fear, have gotten the notion that trusting in Christ is like buying a ticket to an orchestra hall once and for all. And that you can put this ticket away in your pocket as the guarantee of your admission someday. Even though the affections of your life are captured by the music of this world, that is not a biblical view of saving faith. It is a delusion. Faith is a precondition for enjoying the symphony of God's glory. Not in the sense of getting a ticket, but in the sense of getting an ear for heaven's music. The real precondition of enjoying the music of heaven throughout eternity is actually a new heart. And that new heart delights in the things of God. Not a decision card which you carry in your pocket to ease your conscience while your mind is still captivated by the delights of this world. Wow, what a beautiful picture of what that is. And so many people do think of salvation in that way. It's my get out of hell free card. 
You know, it's, I'm holding on to this till I get there. But then what do we do? We just keep living for this world. We keep living for the temporal. We forget what that original promise was based on. We forget what Jesus taught us. Flip in your Bibles to the last passage we're going to look at, I promise. Matthew chapter 28. Another familiar passage, but this is important to understand. So Jesus comes as that promised Messiah. He is a better Abraham in the way that he lives out his life in totality of faith. He is a better Isaac in the sense that he is a perfect sacrifice. And at this point, he's a better David because he has defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he literally can extend peace to all humanity. And then before he ascends into heaven... He says this, Matthew chapter 28. We refer to this as the Great Commission. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven, that's a better David, and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of, what does it say? All nations. That's a better Abraham. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So right there in the Great Commission, we see a better David and a better Abraham. All of a sudden, we are now commissioned to be the picture of the blessings to the nations. We are the ones who are not supposed to get self-absorbed like Israel did for that time and just think it's about them and it's about our comforts and it's about our promises and it's about what we're going to get out of this. But we have to turn our eyes away from ourselves and live in sacrifice and say, you know what, I literally want to worship you, Lord, and I want to worship you in the true honoring way of understanding the word worship. I want to sacrifice for you. I want to be a blessing to the nations, not just sit here and soak up the blessing that is being a follower and having my card. I want to live. I want to have an ear that is tuned to the symphony of heaven. You see, the promise to Abraham was that through him would come kings and nations, and the nations would be blessed. It would begin with this promised son born miraculously. And all of this points to Jesus, the son of Abraham, the king, the hope, the blessing to the nations. Now, all of those in Christ... All of us who are believers are sent as a blessing. And as we are sent, we bring the good news of the king. My question to you as you reflect on this during this season is what kingdom are you living for? I want to draw you back to the analogy that I said. There's three people that missed that first Christmas, right? Uh, There was Herod out of fear, the innkeeper because he was so busy, and the religious leaders because they were indifferent. I just want to remind you, what kingdom are you living for? Herod was living for the kingdom of this world, and so he was like, I don't want anybody threatening what I want. The religious leaders were living for the kingdom of religion. They had all their I's dotted and all their T's crossed, and they were much better than everyone else because they were so much more committed. They were so much more spiritual. They were so much more righteous. They didn't need a Savior because they were saving themselves. And the innkeeper was just distracted with how busy life is. He just gets distracted with things that come at him one after another after another. I just want to remind you again that very easily we can miss what this is all about. But the way that we don't miss it is we go back and just remember the beginning story. Remember where this has a foundation. And remember that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is that promised child who would become a sacrifice for us. Thankfully, the Christmas story doesn't end with a baby in a manger. Thankfully, it ends with that baby growing up to be a man and a sacrifice on a cross. Now that sounds weird to say, thankfully, but 
Without Jesus' sacrifice, none of us are saved. Leviticus makes it very clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice for us so that we may enter into heaven, enter into the presence of God, and have an ability to worship El Olam, God eternal. You know what? This whole thing, this whole Christianity, this whole church thing, this whole gospel thing, you do realize, me and you both, that it's bigger than us, that it's not just about our little circumstances and the little things that we worry about. From it's bigger than us. It's going to go beyond us. God has been faithful to bring it to this point. He's going to be faithful to take it beyond us if the Lord tarries. So my question again that I leave you with is, what kingdom are you living for? Let's pray together. God, thank you for a word that challenges us, but also just instills hope in us. What a beautiful picture that thousands of years, thousands of years before you ever came as a baby, that there is this picture of everything that you are going to do and how you are going to be better than everything that we would see in the Old Testament. Even giants of faith that we would look to and go, man, I wish I could have faith like that. You are better than all of them. And so our focus becomes your kingdom. Our focus becomes your gospel. Our focus becomes what you want to do with us, not what we want you to do for us. And so I pray that during this season, when many people will be focused on what we can get out of it, I pray that we would reflect on what you would want to get out of us, what we would be called for, separated for, declared holy for, how we could take your great gospel message and continue to live out that faith in a way that is sacrificial, in a way that's worshipful. And we ask this in the power and the authority of our sovereign Lord and King, the Son of Abraham, Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and may he give you his peace. Thank you. Blessings as you go in the name of Jesus.